Cool. Well, uh, how about them Phillies? Anyone a uh, Phillies fan in here? Yeah, we got some Phil fans. Awesome. Anyone remember back to the days of, uh, I thought Jess Mel was going to go there. Like, remember Pete Rose days? I thought she was there. Yeah, you remember when Pete Rose, Mike Schmidt, those guys? Oh, they were amazing. I enjoyed that. A um, little bit of issues later there with one of those players, but we won't get into that. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing you guys uh, after church today. If you want to make it, Justin, I love hosting you, and we'd love to have you over for that lunch and then for the membership class. So uh, let us know if you have any questions. Well, um, so what we've been doing, if you're here and you're new, what we've been doing is we've been studying the book of Revelation together, and we're going through a series called The Mystery of Revelation. Now, in this series, in The Mystery of Revelation, I don't know about you, it's been pretty... Uh, pretty interesting. It's been, uh, I would say, uh, invigorating, spiritually invigorating. It's been challenging for me personally, um, and it's been quite interesting. Okay, so get this, no joke. Um, The very first Discovery Bible study I did, this was like two or three weeks ago, we sat down, and there was someone who was there for the first time. And uh, guess what his name was, his middle name was? Apocalypse. Can you believe that? I did an actual Bible study with a guy named, in Revelation, with a guy named Apocalypse. And every time I get into that, it becomes more and more dramatic in my mind. I sit down and look at him and said, do you know anything about the Apocalypse? And he looks at me and says, my middle name is Apocalypse. And then the whole room we were in was shaking, thunder and lightning. I mean, it was pretty cool. So if you were there, there's some people in here who know. That any, I mean, he might, maybe he'll come to church. I don't know. Maybe he'll show up sometime. But the apocalypse is coming, guys. <laughs> ask, ask Cindy Lee. She'll tell you. It, is, it was the coolest experience. There is no, okay, well, maybe I, I kind of, you know, made up that part, the earthquake part. But he was really there. So that was pretty cool. So if you go to one of these uh, small groups that we have, the Narsan, you might go and experience the apocalypse yourself in a very personal way. But anyway, uh, it is dramatic. The, the book of Revelation is certainly dramatic with all the dragons and the, the horsemen and the, the shaking of the celestial bodies and an appearance of heaven, what it's got coming to earth. I mean, it really is quite an incredible book, and there's nothing quite like it uh, in all the Bible and, uh, but what, it, what it's about, so the, rev, the word revelation is a, the word apocalypse. They mean the same thing, which simply means the unveiling. And we've, we've discussed, and I'm just doing a quick little review of what we've done the past week or so, uh, is that it's not, it's, it wasn't meant to be some kind of cryptic uh, book uh, that that's only these intellectual elites could understand and that we, you'd have to do all of these fancy little, um, you know, literary kind of uh, gymnastics in order to understand. In fact, it was written in a way that was meant to be understood, and its plain meaning was meant to be understood in its original context uh, when it was written, uh, you know, back uh, just years after, less than 100 years after Jesus uh, came. So our, as we look at at the scripture, our our, uh, perspective needs to keep in mind what it meant to the people that it was written to at that time. And what it comes down to, what it is unveiling, Revelation, this is a book about a revelation, understanding who Jesus is. That's, if you want to understand the main and the plain, uh, the book of Revelation wasn't written to create a series of novels or movies. It was written to help you understand who Jesus is and his plans for the world, not only in this original context, but now and for eternity. 
That's what the book of Revelation is about, bottom line. It's about Jesus himself. And we see a picture of Jesus, which actually can be quite dramatic and quite stunning. We see a side of him that many people don't see. And one of those key takeaways from the book is this idea of repentance, changing the way we think, changing the way we act, in order to, uh, to align ourselves with Jesus and his coming kingdom and his kingdom which is here today. And so that, that's a big part of what we've discussed before. And Jesus never said, never told any of his followers, and we'll see this even more clearly today, that it would be easy. It's not easy following Jesus, and it certainly wasn't, wasn't back then. So, with that said, and I'll, I'll let the scripture speak for itself, but I want to dedicate this message to all people who are here today, and really the millions of people across the world who have experienced some kind of persecution or suffering or difficulty because of their relationship with Jesus. This is the context for this story. If you've been accused, if you've experienced financial strain, if you've experienced a different kind of family sacrifices, or you've been criticized or made fun of by family or friends because of your faith, then today's message is for you. And it's for those of us who who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus and are making that commitment. And perhaps you're here today and you're thinking, wow, just I wouldn't want to make fun of that. Like, is that even worthwhile making that kind of commitment to be made fun of or ostracized because of my faith or persecuted or, or even something worse? I, I would want you, if you're in that boat today, to consider why it might be uh, worth considering committing your life to what we see here laid out in, in this book and particularly in this section, this kind of life. It's a radical commitment that demands, demands a lot and it's certainly not easy. So today, the title for today is, uh, today's message is The Presser, Pressure of Persecution. And we'll look at a church and what Jesus has to say to a church that is experiencing this persecution. So let's take a moment. I want to pause and I want to do a little intercessory prayer together. So intercessory simply means to, to go in between on behalf of another group of people. And so I'm just going to pray out of my heart some of the, the things I've been praying and perhaps you can pray along with me as we do. I don't know. We'll see where the Holy Spirit leads as, as I pray. But um, let's just carry the world, <laughs> bring the world before God. It's too big for us, but it's not f- for Jesus. He, he can, in fact, take the world into his hands and bring restoration. So let's, let's ask him to do that. So, um, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your very presence with us today. For, yes, just as Anna had mentioned, there is a, your sweet presence. And we thank you that your presence is good, that you are faithful and loving and true, that you are light in darkness like we sang about, you are, you are peace in the midst of the storm. And God, there are so many different storms and tornadoes and uh, just shakings and rumblings that are happening in people's lives that we don't, we don't know about. And we bring some of those nations before you. We bring before you the nation of Bangladesh, God, that you would, you would bring your kingdom and there, there would be an inbreaking of your will and your kingdom into that place, into the lives of young women in particular who, who may not have opportunities that, that they wouldn't ordinarily have. Would you empower the Morrison family to come uh, into that place? Would you open roads and give them access, give them favor so that they can be agents of, of peace and reconciliation and your love, Jesus, and that they would ultimately have a revelation of who you are? We pray for countries like Eritrea, God, uh, and, and, and in Africa, where there's experiencing extreme violence and tribal f- factions that are, that are leading to even more violence against, against your church. Lord, we bring before you nations like North Korea, 
God, where there is such extreme persecution and the church is pushed underground that they would thrive and grow and become the church you've called them to be. We pray for the church in Afghanistan, Lord, in Iran, and all throughout the Middle East where, where there's, there's millions of who are suffering, but where your church is thriving. Your kingdom come, your will be done among them, God. And we pray now, God, also for today that you would, in our very moment, you would come and impact our hearts, bring conviction and life. Would you speak to us that we would hear your words in the book of Revelation as your words to your church, to us, at this place and in this time, just as you spoke very clearly to those people uh, in that time in the, in the town of Smyrna. And finally, Lord, we bring before you Israel, the nation of Israel, uh, Palestine, all the people impacted. We pray for an end to violence and that you would bring peace and restoration. Your kingdom would come to the Middle East, to your people, to, to, to that area, Lord, that, that special area of the earth where it's, there's so, so much strife, God. We, we pray that your kingdom would become in breaking there as well. And we thank you for all this, and we look forward to what you want to say to us, God, today. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Okay, so let's jump right in. If you want to follow along your Bibles, um, it might be more helpful than usual today because I'm going to take like verse by verse and it'll kind of look very piecemeal. But if you open your Bible and look at the whole section, it might help you look at each verse in the context. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. If that's helpful for you, do it. There's no, no, um, no pressure to do that, of course, but it might be helpful as we study our Bibles together. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, particularly. It's, it's the second of seven messages that Jesus gives to specific churches in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, that are kind of a circular letter that went around and was uh, read among the house churches. Okay, so this, this, um, this particular book, or, and even this message, was written probably around 95 to 96 AD of what scholars estimate. So about 100 years um, after the birth of Christ, 60 or so years after his, his ministry. Now, Revelation 2.8 he um, starts out, the message says, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write. Okay, so that's, let's talk about Smyrna just real briefly. If you want to put up that picture there. So Smyrna, it was a rich port city uh, that was a rival to Ephesus. So last week we talked about Ephesus. You know, there's a book called of Ephesians. It's one of the major uh, ports, a, a major um, industrial center where lots of uh, commercial uh, traffic was coming through, so it was a beautiful boat city, or a city where boats would come through, and it was one of the epicenters, the uh, financial districts and a place of uh, powerful influence. It was an intellectually prestigious city, too, so it was home of uh, Homer, remember, not, not the Simpsons Homer, the original Homer, okay? Uh, Marcus Aurelius later uh, took on a presence, this is, this is dating at a different time, but um, it, was, it was a significant, all that's to say, it was a significant city and really continues to be so today, although under a different name. And so contextually, if you go back 30 years, 63 AD, there was intense persecution. So uh, the emperor Nero, who was the emperor before Domitian, when this, Domitian is the time when this was written, but 30 years back. So this is fresh in the, in the memories of those who are experiencing and reading this letter. Uh, there, was a, there was a fire that started, and there were rumors circulating that the emperor, that Nero had started them. So in order to combat kind of his political 
um, strategy to combat the rumors that he started, whether he did or not. And I'm not sure, I haven't studied too much of the history whether he did, but there's maybe some uncertainty there. But what he did is he started another rumor that the Christians, this new sect that had been uh, born, were the ones who started. And so the most intense persecution that the church had ever experienced was started. So what they would do, you've heard of Roman candles, but they would, they would literally put Christians on crosses and burn them in lines uh, as you were walking in sea and in their parties. Like, that's what they would do. I mean, that's what the level of persecution we're talking about. It was horrible. I mean, the, the bloodshed was just, was just terrible. And it got a little bit better, but still, it was pretty intense. So that's the kind of the, what we're talking about. We're talking about persecution. I mean, this is, this is real deal persecution. It's nothing we've ever experienced personally, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sure. So, a little note. You guys remember, I referenced earlier, and you've probably heard of it, uh, you know the number 666 in the Bible? And that's kind of a mysterious number, like people think, is that going to be a number that's typed on your forehead or written on your hand? And there's some of that illustration. But the number 666, remember, Revelation is symbolic. And so the numbers, well, first of all, uh, six is a number in and of itself that has significance, one less than seven. Seven being the number of completion or perfection, and six, one less than that, is the opposite. It's imperfection or lack of completion or, or sin. But really, what this number is, really just a code that was understood by the people of time using a system called gematria, which is you taking numbers and assigning numerical values to them. Okay, and people, you can actually do this in English today as well. But in the Greek, if you assigned those variables or those numbers to certain letters and you added up those numbers, which is how it worked, 666 spelled out, or when you spelled out the word Nero Caesar, then you get the number 666. And so in fact, what 666 represents and what it was, it was code for, C for Caesar, for particularly for Nero Caesar and what he represented, which was this um, monster of a pagan empire, which is being, bringing about destruction in the time. So In the time, it meant that very specific thing, but it's also representative of any kind of empire which seeks to kill and destroy God's people and his church and lead to oppression. So it, so it contained a very real meaning in its context, but also has larger reaching implications for us today. So understand that's kind of a little, uh, little note to understand when you read the book of Revelation, what 666 actually, actually meant. Okay. Let's look at the next verse, Revelation 2, verse 8. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. So to a church that's experiencing death on a regular basis and that have known people who have died, it would be certainly encouraging to hear about the life that, that Jesus had. As followers of Jesus, as we follow him into death, we will also follow him into life. And so if you suffer for Jesus, if you've died for Jesus, if you've given your life away from him, the promise, just as Jesus died and rose from the dead, is that promise is for, for us as well, for those who commit their lives to Christ, that they will, in two, in turn, be resurrected and experience the life of the kingdom. And so one of the insights we also see here that we get, remember the book of Revelation, what it's all about? It's all about revealing more about who Jesus is. And so we see something about Jesus, two things here. One, he's the first and the last, and he's died, but he also came to life again. And so what Revelation and the scriptures will often do, it, when we look at Jesus, Jesus is so mysterious, he's somehow able to, in one person, embody two extremes. 
So he's first, but he's also last. He's, he's the one who died and is known as the one who died, yet he's the one who is alive and well. In Scripture, we see him as the lamb who suffered, the suffering lamb, the Passover lamb, yet also he is the lion, the lion of Judah. He is, he is the first and the last. He exists outside of time, but also intersects and interacts with people within time. He was and is seen in the book of Revelation as the almighty, yet he comes and he came as the lowly. He is both a light in the darkness and a mystery to those who do not know him. And so it might be worth considering following him because there is no one like Jesus in all of history. Certainly not only in description, but in actuality, in the way that he lived his life, Jesus is the greatest mystery as this member of the Holy Trinity. And so what um, John is doing here, what Jesus is, and he's presenting Jesus, he's saying, okay, this is the mystery of Revelation is Jesus himself, and here's, here's, here's part of who he is. So we get these little glimpses into this eternal, mysterious nature of Jesus that his followers, well, in fact, the, un, the mystery of Jesus is so mysterious and he's so infinite that for the rest of, when we live in eternity, we will infinitely, he is so infinite that we will infinitely discover new things about who Jesus is, is on all these extremes and uh, in, every, in every way. So this is, it's a little bit mind-boggling. But let's go on, okay? And let's look at what he says. So that gives our, our framework for what we're going to be talking about. This is what he starts off saying to the church in Smyrna. Okay, Revelation 2.9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know your afflictions and your poverty, and yet you are rich. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying at least two things. One, he knows their pain. And Jesus knows their pain because he physically experienced the very things that the church was, was experiencing. The, the poverty, for example, the, the afflictions. Jesus lived as a poor person and he, he lived being uh, treated poorly all throughout his ministry and of course ultimately seen on the cross uh, being killed for his own faith. And so we, as God's followers, as followers of Jesus, can be comforted by Jesus knowing that he himself experienced the very same things uh, that we have. And like most of us here, you know, I can't, we, I can't relate. And just what we, let's be honest, probably no one here can relate at the level at, of persecution, right? Can we just, like, let's just say that. We've never experienced that. We've not, I haven't had a relative hung on a cross. I haven't had someone I know killed for their faith. I've, I've known people who, um, who've been imprisoned, and I'll get to that in a little bit because there's going to be an upcoming opportunity, but we experience little glimpses of it, though. You know, I've, I've known the pains of what it, what it means to, in ministry, uh, being involved in ministry. You get to see people that you love and that you invest time and energy, and, and you give yourselves away sacrificially, only to have them come back and curse you or, or break the relationship in a way that's extremely hurtful. I've, I've seen that happen multiple times of friends and myself. You know, I remember one instance I was praying. I just felt this heartache over this broken, this, this situation where the, someone had, had just cut off communication altogether. And it was, it, it was really hard. And I was just praying about it. I couldn't do anything to comfort myself. And in that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit whisper, whisper to me. It's like, well, Rich, now you just know a very little of the way I feel. The very slice. And so we sometimes get these small slices of the way that Jesus experienced. He understands what it, what it means. 
You know, I've also, you know, being involved in ministry and even Anna sharing, hey, we need investment. Like, there's been years when I made a switch. So I wasn't always a pastor. I actually never planned on it. God called me to this out of, I was, I was a systems engineer and I was a teacher for a while when I thought I was supposed to be working with people and I was trying to discern my calling. But when we've made those changes to work in ministry, the financial strain was pretty hard. I mean, in all of those different contexts where we chose to live, what we chose to do, I mean, there were times where we didn't know if we could have heating in our house. And we had guests over and we were keeping it like 60 degrees. They weren't too happy about that. Uh, I, I remember that. So it was a little bit strange. Yes, I remember that. There was the days where we, uh, the, one of the, our favorite stories early on was eating peanuts for dinner. That was one of our dinners we ate. and uh, They were good peanuts, though. Legumes are very healthy. <laughs> Uh, and if a little salt on there, very tasty, very tasty. But she'll never let me forget that, Jess, when we had the, the peanut era of our, um, of our marriage. And so, you know, in here, though, it's, I mean, that's, we, we, were, we were fine, right? We were going to be fine. But Smyrna, when you talk about poverty in the ancient context, I mean, that means really you have no food, like, or you don't have somewhere to sleep, or you don't have clothes to wear. That's the level of poverty we're talking about here. And so it's a little bit different. But in our lives and in the life of the church here, God always shows up. For us, I've seen God in those afflictions, in those times of difficulty. It's when you get to see God show up in miraculous ways, unexpected. I'll give you an example. Financially, we had some additional expenses this month, and we were like $296 short. And for whatever reason, uh, the healthcare company... Uh, Blue Cross, whatever they sent it for the first time, they just sent us a check for two hundred ninety-eight dollars. Like, and I was like, "What is this?" I was like, "Wow." Well, Jess is like, "You know what that is? Come on, Rich. You know what? I've told you. You don't have to worry about this." I'm like, "Okay, honey, you're right. You have more faith than me. You're more holy than me. You're right. You got it." But God will provide, and it's in those moments, even in our struggles, no matter how little or how big. God will meet us there, and his presence is with us. He is the first and the last. He stands outside of time and space and money and can do miraculous things, and he continues to do that in each of our lives. You know, in our relationship with Jesus, I don't know about you, but the times when we experience the phrase that's often used in um, the book of Ephesians, Paul uses the uh, inexpressible riches of his grace. The riches of his grace, what's, what's God's grace? It's ultimately his presence. And again, I don't know if about you, but in my experience, my personal experience with Jesus is that the most difficult, demanding, strenuous times of my life are when I experience God's presence the most. When I appreciate, when I'm straining, I appreciate the breakthrough of God's kingdom in those moments, unlike other moments where everything's, you know, fine and dandy. You experience God's grace and his presence in a very unique way. And so just as we read the book of Revelation, just now, and particularly now, the highlight, we're going to see the very clear, plain meaning of this is how a church can persevere and stay faithful under persecution. But just imagine yourself in the situation where death and dying and poverty is at a level. It's hard because many of us have not experienced that. This is the mindset we have to have when we approach this scripture. So just keep that in mind as we keep reading. But it was in those moments that God showed up in powerful, miraculous ways. You know where God, most of the miracles, that we, the reports are coming out? They come out of the poorest places and among the poorest people in the world because God 
come. He, he's father to the fatherless. He, he is the God of the, to preach the gospel of the poor. That is his commission. When we work and we, and we see God's work among the poor, whether it's emotional or physical or any other way, that's when the kingdom of God shows up most powerfully, as it was here. Okay, so let's read the last uh, couple verses here. So, Revelations 2, verse 9b, or the second part of 9, let's go ahead. It says this, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Wow, okay. That's, that's, that's nice. I was, I was contemplating whether to call my sermon synagogue of Satan or not. But I thought, like, online they might get the wrong picture. So I, I just, per, the pressure of persecution was a little, a little better. I don't know. You think I made a good choice there? I, I don't know. But it's, thank you. Thank you. I, I, I'm glad I did. But Smyrna, so that town was actually a, a home. So let's give some context. What is he saying here? Because that can be take, taken out of context. It was home to a significant Jewish population. Okay, so the synagogue at that time simply meant the gathering of the Jewish worshipers. That's what the synagogue was. It was the gathering of God, essentially God's people. And so to be a synagogue of Satan, now the word Satan or the Satan simply means the accuser. Okay, so that's what, it's not his name. He doesn't have a name, Satan. Satan is, a, is his, his role in what was originally the, uh, the divine council. We can get into that later when we talk about spiritual beings, but that's who Satan was. And so the synagogue of Satan is, is really, it's speaking into uh, being accused by fellow brothers or those who are originally Jews. So what was happening is, is in this, in this particular time, the, the Roman government were giving protections for the Jewish community to not have to offer the same sacrifices they had to do. Uh, however, and, and then the Christians, because they were considered a sect of Judaism at the time, they were covered by, the, by those protections. However, as the church began to emerge as its own movement, and the Jew, everyone saw it, the Jewish community saw it, the Roman government saw it, they were removed from those protections that were given to the Jewish people and the exemptions, I guess you could call them, that were made for them politically. And so they began to experience the tension of experiencing a persecution that they, they originally did not have because they were, they were not under that political protection. And what the Jewish community was doing to them was, was blaming them, accusing them of, of basically not being true Jews and accusing them of of not being able to have those protections that the Jewish government had said. So that, that's what gives context for what's actually saying here. And so it's all about accusation. And Jesus, of course, being the, the fulfillment of the messianic pr promise, uh, shows that it was, in fact, just the opposite, that as followers of Jesus, they were, in fact, in line with what God's plan for the Jews had been all throughout history. Now, I want to mention two examples. So just this week... I spoke to two different people in our church. Um, one was a student, and this student told me about being mocked at school because of their Christian faith, because they were a follower of Jesus, and they were treating other students in a way and not um, using the same kind of language, not engaging in the same kind of behavior. They were being mocked at school, and they were doing so regularly, and that that student uh, felt the pressure and started trying to conform and acting like that. But that's a very real thing that maybe you've experienced yourself or maybe there's young people that you know who are in high school and middle school today that are experiencing this kind of, kind of ridicule. It happens in person and it happens, a lot of it happens online as well. 
And uh, it seems to me as though there's been an increase of this kind of, I mean, I guess you could call it persecution, but uh, maybe joking or being made fun of at least. So it's something, and it's real, and it, and it hurts. It really hurts. And I t- I, this, this, this week, I also spoke to another uh, person in our church who, who was experiencing this directly from a very close family member because uh, they made a decision to, to commit their lives fully to Jesus and live into this life that Jesus has. They've experienced uh, a rejection from, from family, saying, I don't want to have anything to do with this, this faith that you have, and I don't want to have, and ultimately, I don't really want to have anything. It was insinuated in the conversation. As a result of this change in your life, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Because I'm not going that direction. You're not acting like the way you used to act. And so this is, this is uh, these struggles are real. And it is. It's hard to be accused, and it's hard uh, to, to stand firm in faith. And th- I mean, that's, this is the world that we're living in. And it perhaps, uh, at least the, if the trends continue, we're going to see a continued increase and it's going to become, there's, cultural Christianity is kind of falling. That's not going to, if it is even a thing. It's, I guess in some places more so, but that's not really the, the culture in the context that we currently live. But know this. See, Jesus knows what it's like to be slandered. Jesus knows what it's like to be accused. In fact, 2 Timothy, Paul writes this, 3.12. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life and and Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He's saying it's going to happen. It is going to happen. And in fact, there might be some spiritual concerns if you have not experienced any kind of difficulty in your relationship with Jesus, because of your relationship with Jesus. So if you've been there, listen to what Jesus says. He said it to them and he says it to us in verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Church, people of God, followers of Jesus, this is the word of God for you. Be faithful faithful? Are you feeling accused or oppressed? Are you feeling the financial strain? Are you feeling slandered? Are you feeling there's, there's come some kind of affliction because of your commitment to Jesus and what he's told you to do? Be faithful. Continue. Remain. Persevere. This is the word that God has for each of us. And remember, when we look at this particularly, Revelation uses numbers symbolically. So he says persecution for 10 days. That doesn't necessarily mean, and probably doesn't, mean exact 10 days. It could mean 10 months. It could mean 10 years. It could mean any undisclosed period of, complete period of time which you will experience imprisonment. And this is what happened. And they were, and Jesus was telling them ahead of time, this is going to happen to you. Be prepared. And when it happens, remain faithful. And when you do, you will be given the victor's crown. And... You know, I, to me, it was, it's been really sad. You know, it's interesting what happened in Western Christianity, or at least in, in the American church, I can speak because I know the American church and I talk to friends who are pastors and know the scene a little bit better. So I'll speak into that context. But just what, what COVID did to, to the church 
that, pe- that so many people fell away. There, there's a significant, across the board, a people, because of the pressure of whatever it was that happened, it just completely decimated many of the church. There's an unfaithfulness that was seen that kind of swept, kind of shook the trees a little bit. Um, but what faithfulness does is it requires us to persevere even when we don't feel it. It's not about following our feelings. It's about following Jesus. Our feelings, as we submit to him, will come into line, and those are important. But those aren't, they are not our God. And you can live, you can avoid persecution, you can avoid suffering if you want. You can avoid the pressure of persecution if you like. What you can do, so if you want to avoid any pressure in your life for following Jesus, do this. Don't, just don't make any commitments for Jesus, especially ones you have to follow through on. Don't ever speak up or say anything about Jesus in conversations because it might be politically incorrect. When things get hard in your relationship with God, just quit. If you, uh, if you are seeing people acting a certain way that are apart from God, just act like they do and do what they do despite what Jesus says and you'll fit in and people will think you're a cool person and you'll be a popular person. At least you will for a little bit of time. Blend in, don't be noticed, or... You know what you could do is if you can, you can really avoid all kinds of pressure and persecution for your faith if you just isolate yourself. So if you just go by yourself, don't talk to anyone, don't go out in public, don't go out even among the church, you know, don't make any kind of commitments that obligate you to any person where you have to have responsibilities in, doing, in interacting with people. If you isolate yourself, you won't avoid, you will avoid a lot of persecution and you'll be fine and safe in your own little isolated cocoon. Okay, so those are some strategies if you want to avoid persecution. However, that's not the godly life God calls us to, is it? This isn't the plan. In fact, everyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's part of the package of what it means to follow Jesus is to experience affliction, to experience this. This is the promise that God gives to us. So the question I want to leave you with or ask you and the question I have as I approach this test is, you know, if, if I were to experience this level of persecution, would I be faithful? If my family members were killed or I was threatened with death or imprisonment, would I remain faithful? Well, let me ask you this question. In the little things, are you making faithful, loving sacrifices for the sake of Jesus right now? And if you're doing that, and that's the direction your life is taking. It might help give you some insight on this question in and of itself. Are you choosing to suffer for commitment to Jesus? And I believe this is the sobering, humbling question that Jesus would offer to us as, as he was speaking to the church in Smyrna. He was looking at them and seeing this kind of commitment. Now let me talk about outside of our context. Since we live in a different context, persecution does indeed look different for us. Okay, so for us to make a, follow, a statement to be a follower of Jesus means different, something much different than if you made the decision, say you were living in Iran or North Korea and you were publicly baptized. There, there's a lot of different ramifications. It's really exciting and fun. We can go out on the deck here and we can do baptisms. But if we did that in another context, you could be shot and killed or you could disappear and never reappear. You go swimming with the fishies is what would happen. Now, that's a different commitment. However, 
just because we don't experience that level of persecution, just because we don't experience that level of imprisonment or whatever it might be, doesn't mean it's not happening. And in fact, according to Open Doors, which is an organization that uh, looks at persecution among Christians in the world, more than 360 million, listen to, listen to the number, 360 million Christians today suffer high levels of persecution in the world today. You can see on the map here, so orange is like high level, or, or orange is very high level. Red is extreme level, okay? So I'll give you a hint, Bangladesh has one of those colors on it. You don't just walk into Bangladesh waving the Christian flag wherever you go. It's not, that's not how it works. You come in, you empower, you, you, you meet the felt needs, you start businesses and allow God and the Holy Spirit to work in ways that we can't work here. Another um, uh, organization I'd encourage you to consider, just if you want to learn more ongoing, and I've mentioned this before, is an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. And I've left two free, fresh copies, even in their plastic for you. If you want to take it on the way out, just take a copy. Okay, you can sign up. They, they love to send out all these. I think they're monthly, monthly letters. But if, you want, if, you've, if you're feeling a nudge, like the Holy Spirit's nudging you to do something, you can eat lunch today with us. If, there's some, if you want to partner with Anna, I would encourage you, come, come to lunch. And then a, another special opportunity. That's today. That's right here if you have, you're available. Come hear more from Anna. She can tell you a little bit more about all the context and things that are happening. Um, but on Sunday, November 4th, okay? So Sunday, November 4th, we have a very special opportunity. I have two friends who I've worked with in the missions world who are going to be speaking here and we're not going to live stream this. This is in person only, and the reason we're not live streaming it is because of security issues. We cannot put this online because it presents an actual security risk to the people they're connected to in the country, which I'm not gonna say uh, for security reasons, in the country in which they're working. I'll give you a hint, it's one of the red ones. And they've personally walked through one of these experiences which I'm gonna let them share about. Okay, so November 4th, you don't want to miss it. It's going to be an honor and privilege to hear from them. And if you want to support, and I'm giving, the way they do support is they don't just ask, they, he, um, especially my one friend, um, he, he has a conviction that he wants to do like a tent. Have you heard of tent making? That's possible, made tents in order to support his ministry. He wants to work in order to support this ministry that he does in the red part of the world there. Um, he might be going in and out, but he works with some of these indigenous leaders. He's selling um, Persian rugs, okay? So you can participate. You can suffer the difficulty of buying a Persian rug for Jesus and be in line with what the kingdom of God is doing. If at least we can buy a Persian rug. So here's some examples. Some ancient, just flip through those. You can flip, flip through these rugs. So this is an opportunity, and they'll be, they'll be being sold out on that weekend. I just want to give you a heads up. But there are small things that we can do. This is one of them that in a very relationship, and you'll get to hear firsthand what that was like for them. So, so consider um, encouraging and building up. And these, actually, these rugs, they're, built, or they're made by women who don't have no other source of income, and they're paid a fair wage for that. So this is their sole source of survival. So it's kind of a cool opportunity, but wanted to bring it before our church. And I, he, he asked me, my friend, I was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's see if, well, if anyone would be interested. Even if you don't like rugs, it could be a good investment. <laughs> Um, all right, so let's look at the last passage and then we'll, we'll be done. Our last verse. 
Revelation 2, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And that's all that Jesus says to the church in Smyrna. You know what's interesting about this? If you read the rest of them, Jesus has zero criticism. Zero criticism for the church in Smyrna, where in every other church, he's got something to say. And apparently, it's this kind of church that Jesus sees as doing the kingdom stuff. And to do it, there's going to be some opposition. There's going to be persecution that happens. And as we enter in time of communion, um, which we'll do in a moment, just a second here, he talks about the second death. He says, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. The second death is what happens to us spiritually after we die physically. So we die, the first death is our physical death, and then after that, there's a time, there's a mysterious something that happens in the afterlife where we either go to spiritual death or we go to spiritual life. There's two options there. It's not in between, it's spiritual life or spiritual death, just as our physical body is either physically alive or physically dead. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to make an appeal for you to just a moment and just say, would you consider the one who is this great mystery, the one who died and rose again and came back to talk about it, is worth considering giving your life to. And the promise that Jesus says, according to him, the guy who died and rose from the dead, is that if you put your faith in, if you believe in Jesus, you will not have to taste second death. And so my invitation is to take a step today to that invitation that Jesus gives to have true life, to avoid the second death, and in fact be raised with him again just as Jesus was. And it makes all the suffering worthwhile because that's, that's where eternity is. This, this time is just so minuscule and compared. So what we're going to do in order to celebrate and remember the, the suffering of Jesus, and if that's a step you want to take today for the first time, again, we don't want to, this is not, you don't have to pretend to want to follow Jesus, but this is for those who said, yep, I believe in Jesus. I believe the sacrifice that he made for me, and I'm willing to follow him. By your tables, there are these uh, communion elements. If you want to, in faith, say, yeah, Jesus, I accept your sacrifice for, for my sin. Let's do that. Let's do that together now.